Welcome to the Out of the Woods podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 30th, 2023. So Lee, it's that time. We got another DFA report, and that's what I'm going to start with. And I'm kind of going to run through a, a good list of things. I want to call it a point, uh, an approach to kind of how we should be looking at these things as a threat hunter on how we look at these things as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, a brief summary, obviously an actor got into an environment. Um, the cool thing about this is uh, they did use some tools that I haven't seen used either in a while or before at all. Um Nothing that was homegrown, but just other tools they brought in, third-party tools. And this uh, DFA report actually shows where all the activity until the adversary was removed from the network. Um, so it wasn't a start to finish as far as impact, which, you know, I think is an interesting thing looking at the amount of detail they have because, you know, sometimes people assume, well, there's a lot of activity because the actor was able to finish everything they wanted to do. Uh, and in this case, you can see how much activity just by someone being in your environment, um, how much noise they can really make. Uh, but to kind of run through some of the, the key things that I pulled out as a threat hunter, um, was obviously they're using some encoded partial commands, which is a pretty obvious find, uh, to see in the data. Uh, they did registry run keys for um, uh, remote management tool net support. I haven't really seen net support used, but it's, it's been used in the past uh, by doing some research. Uh, we're, we're also seeing a lot of adversaries use kind of the open third-party tooling for remote management as an easy way to get past defenses and maintain you know control of the environment. But they had a run key for persistence for that, and the run key was created by PowerShell. So I think there's a lot of lot there as far as just looking at um, different ways to identify that behavior. And they also installed OpenSSH to allow SSH. Uh, but something that was interesting in their um, implementation of that is they're taking advantage of the environments or the way this environment was set up. And a lot of environments seem to be set up when it comes to external firewall management. A lot of firewalls prevent activity coming into the environment, and people don't pay too much attention to what egress is. They don't really filter the egress traffic. So in this case, they set up an open SSH uh, client. They had it listen on a non-standard port, but similar to the SSH port, which was 2222. But they had a scheduled service or scheduled task run to actually make it call out um, to set up that shell. So, you know, if you don't have good filtering on egress for firewall rules, that's that's how people get around that. And just kind of bypass the firewall controls. 
Uh, they use a batch script to set up some scheduled tasks and change some ACLs on things. Uh, from a threat hunter's perspective, when I look at batch scripts, I always look for what are defined executables in there. Uh, because a lot of times it's a really good way to do timed analysis where uh, if you know an adversary uses these tools within a batch script, then you can look for execution because batch scripts are fast, typically. Um, within a time window, you see all these. You can do unique counts to make sure there's you know multi multiple of the, the types of executables listed and the overall count to see, you know, are you seeing a lot of behavior within that window? Uh, they created some local user accounts and add them to administrative groups. They did uh, try to circumvent Defender um, by using the commandlets in PowerShell with the get MP preferences and add MP preferences. But something I thought was interesting here, they did the get MP threat, and the get MP threat is a way to see what is Defender alerting on. And I felt like they were doing that to see if any of their activity was being alerted on as they're doing what they were doing, which I thought was kind of interesting to see, right? Like, hey, would I get you know caught by this? Um, and then they did use proc dump to dump LSAS. Uh, but there's kind of an interesting thing we'll talk a little later on in one of the behaviors mentioned, but they used a renamed executable. Um, so to avoid the standard naming for proc dump because a lot of people when they build detections for tools that are commonly used they include the tools names and adversaries are just getting smart for those types of detections and just renaming them but the arguments will stay the same they also mo modified the host firewall with netsh uh, and they moved a lot of packages around in cab files which was interesting um Usually cab files are what store system files or driver files, uh, but they just included their payloads in cab files and they used the expand executable to uh, pull those out, basically using a cab file like a zip file. Uh, they did get uh, domain credential-based things using uh, running PowerShell for NTDS util. Uh, and one of the things I thought was interesting was that instead of targeting... LSAS by process name, they were targeting it um, by the process ID, but in order to do that, they're using the find executable to locate that from a task list run. Uh, they use a tool called PingCastle, and I didn't dig into that too much, but I haven't really seen PingCastle either. And I remember you bringing that up when we were discussing earlier. So, But it's basically an Active Directory auditing tool, so I'm sure there's some pretty cool capabilities in there. And I've seen it come up more and more where adversaries are actually uh, pulling Windows log files out um, for to get more information or some of their own analysis. So there was some dumping of the 4624 login events, which I always find interesting. And they're using a lot of uh, WMI for lateral commands to execute uh, CMD um, and, and dumping things to the admin share and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's a lot of behaviors I ran through, and there's probably a couple more I didn't pull out, um, but that was pretty much my first pass. What was interesting is, you know, this report just came out, and there were, out of out of the behaviors I pretty much listed, I listed about um, 14 behaviors based on my bullet points, and six of those we already covered. So um, what's nice is when I see a threat like this, and I see that as a threat hunter, I can sit there and say, okay, I already have six of these behaviors covered, and if I'm actively hunting on any of these behaviors, I could feel more confident that we likely haven't seen this before. 
But then when it comes to, you know, how do I build out my hunting library, uh, I look at the behaviors that we don't have and see which ones would be easy to build or have really good detections or returns on or identifications. And so that leaves me a list of, hey, these are some potential hunts I should be looking for or building out and testing. So that's why I really like these reports because there's a lot there. But I like to be able to see um, what I already know from a threat hunter and what I have and what I can kind of add to that list. Because I always think it's important to have that hopper of ideas to hunt on um, and then, you know, work on my prioritization that way versus just try to prioritize on threats, for instance. Um, but yeah, that was my the quickest rundown I think I could do of a DFA report. Um, but yeah, I know you like these and you were digging into it. So what do you think? So like you said, there were a couple things that popped up that stuck out simply because I haven't seen them before. And someone even, I, I think I saw a tweet, someone says the fact that net support manager, um, is being used, it's been around for 30 plus years. Right. That blows my mind where, um, you know, normally, uh, and I'll probably abuse these, um, simply because they are prevalent, but you know, you see any desk, you see team viewer, um, or uh, the Atari agent, you name it. Like there are, um, some, you know, remote management tools that are out there, but not one like this that I've seen that has lasted or has been around for 30 years. Um, now I don't know how much time the adversary put into it. Maybe they're using this. Because it existed in their environment already and could blend in. Um, or maybe they just had access to it uh, or figured that everyone might be looking for any desk or team viewer nowadays and looking for those commonly abused ones. So why not use a tool that's trusted, it's legitimate, but it's very under the radar? Um, which, I mean, really, I don't know how you would go about a hunt where you look for something that's older than 10 plus years, right? I'm sure you can. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Um, but then look, you you hit you hit as well. But there's a lot of PowerShell stuff going on here, um, which, in my mind, is a good tactic by the adversary, um, especially if your organization is not auditing PowerShell operational log or the PowerShell operational log source. Um, and to expand on that is looking at, and you mentioned the registry key modification for persistence, um, but they use the new item, uh, new item property PowerShell command line. Now the significance of that is that that activity will not show up in your standard process create event logs. Um, so, you know, DFA report, they normally show a lot of sysmod event IDs. Um, they have win event logs, uh, log sources and screenshots if they have that. But because the new item property is a PowerShell commandlet and it exists natively uh, or exists uniquely to the PowerShell infrastructure, you won't see it in those process create or uh, either event code 4688 or one, which is significant because once again, like if you are not auditing PowerShell scripts, you'll miss it. Um, now you may see the uh, registry key being modified, that event, uh, but if you're not monitoring that as well, you, you could miss it. 
Um, now, it's not the end of the world, um, but if you don't have PowerShell operational logging, then you're missing the PowerShell script lock logging event codes, which are 4103 and 4104. You may want to look into that because there's a lot of powerful information that you can find just by looking at PowerShell because it is abused so often by the adversaries. Why not start monitoring it? Um, and I'm glad you didn't say it <laughs> because you start talking about the get MP threat, which I caught on as well because I thought that was very interesting. Um, you, I, and I think we thought we took it two different routes though. You said they're looking at the you know if their activity is getting caught, which I didn't even think of. And I was like, mm -hmm. wow, that was that's a really good thing. I was thinking of maybe they were looking for anything that existed on the environment already. That if they are like a um um what is it um like a a partner of someone that if they have a flag or something or there's a file that exists that they don't want to step on anyone's toes uh, or affiliate that's the word i was looking for like if there's multiple people in this environment that's a way they could check to see like if they've been there before or um you know don't want to cause any issues with any other uh adversarial groups um that was my thought um i, I think yours is probably a lot closer to the target than mine was but it was just an interesting thing um, two things that I noticed as well in that same screenshot, though, was that the PowerShell uh, add MP preference to disable the behavior monitoring. The first one that they, uh, the first uh, parameter that they issued, actually behavior was spelled in the British English version. Uh, so it was B-E-H-A-V-I-O-U-R, which I found interesting. Um, because then the next thing that they threw was the same disabled be behavior monitoring as in true, um, but without the U. This just got me thinking of like, well, I don't know. Do they not know where they are uh, or whoever they're attacking? Um, have they not, you know, determined geolocation or is the, the first one that they issued, is that their go-to spelling of behavior, which would kind of lend to attribution of their geolocation or where they could be coming from, which, um, now, once I don't like to play the attribution game, but when I yeah, see... It could be using uh, the translator, right, that maybe translated the word wrong. Yeah, it could be. Like, they could just... And it just makes... It just makes you think, right? Like, um, did, you know, how did that work? Um, and then the last disable uh, or add MP preference that they threw was dis disable real-time monitoring. So it has an extra DIS at the beginning. Um, and I was curious, that is that maybe the, um, the mistake that the adversary made that actually eventually got them caught? Um, because if... You know, if you run this disable real time monitoring uh, with that misspelling, I don't think they actually disabled it. So if may maybe they you know went through with the attack um, and thinking that hey, there's no real time monitoring going on right now for Windows Defender, we're good to go. And then all of a sudden it's like starting to catch up and seeing all this activity and say whoa, hey, you know like something's going on. 
Um, I, I found that interesting. Yeah, there's um, a lot of fumbles. I, I noticed that in other areas too. Yes, not we once again. I never like to provoke the adversary, but this wasn't a. This didn't seem like a um, cold, calculated, uh, you know, 100% prepped nation-state effort. Um, you know, not taking anything away. Uh, but yeah, there were there were a couple steps that you look at and you think, well, that that's an interesting use. Um, you mentioned that, or sorry, in that, or they also added the mpms.exe to the exclusion process uh, for Windows Defender, which was actually uh, propped up. Um, going down to the discovery, I found it interesting that they uh, they threw a bunch of pings, right? They were pinging, pinging, but all of them had the dash n and one, so it was the count one um, uh, parameter, which I, you know. I don't know. You, I guess you would have to baseline your own environment to see what that looks like in your environment. But the fact that they were using all ones, that kind of looks like its own behavior and how you can kind of uh, start looking around your environment and say, well, okay, well, you know, what else does this look like? You you mentioned the um, the uh, event logs being dumped, so all the uh, logon events. I thought that was pretty interesting to figure out. You know, the adversary taking a look at it and saying, hey, you know, what time? You know, these people logging in, you know, get, uh, they're trying to learn the uh, pattern of life. Maybe they had credentials after they did LSAS dump, um, and maybe they were trying to blend in with them. Um, but yeah, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. And then finally, something that I actually thought about while you were talking about um, the Sysmon uh, or the renaming the executable, looking at the process create event log, there was a file name that I've noticed for the very first time in my life, which is... Uh, you know how much I've spent, uh, how much time I spent in Sysmon. Um, but so there's the image, which is the the executable. It's full path, so we see it's C users mpms.exe. But then there's the file version, the description. So they describe what the pro or the executable is, uh, the product. So it says proc dump. The company says sysinternals, and he has the sysinternals.com. And then the original file name. So something that, and I was testing it as you were speaking because I was jumping in Splunk. Um, but you could look, or maybe you could possibly track files executing that aren't what they look like. So if the original file name does not equal the image that was executed, Maybe you you can flag on that or even create that as a detection. Um, but I would start to hunt for that to see what it looks like. I don't know if organizations like to rename normal executables just for their own inventory or just for you know obfuscation. Um, who knows? Uh, but I'm actually, after this podcast, I'm actually going to spend some time taking a look at that to see what that looks like from legitimate binaries. Yeah, so I, I have seen where... Um, it depends on how or when it was compiled where sometimes the name changes. And the one case that I know happens with Microsoft executables is sometimes they're compiled with .dll as the original name. And then it becomes the real name is the executable um, in some instances. And so I think we, if you were to include like a vendor name with like another part, either the description or vendor name, um, 
then you can sit there and prioritize where you care a lot. Like sysinternals is really good. You can say, is it sysinternals and does the original name meet the, you know, file execution name? Um, and that would be like a sysinternal specific detection or hunt. Um, but I feel like you'd have to kind of break it up in those, in those ways. Right. And then you could probably have a generic just as a catch all, but you know, you're not like prioritizing or, you know, spending a huge amount of time on that data specifically. Oh yeah. I'm going to dig into that. That was yeah, very it's interesting. That's all I have for that, believe it or not. Yeah, so to comment on um, one of your points, so the Git MP threat, uh, why I went with the them trying to see if they're being detected is they apparently conducted that um, commandlet um multiple times after doing credential harvesting or lateral movement actions. So like they did something and then they use that as if like, all right, well, did I get caught doing that? Cool. Now I have credentials I can use. Uh, maybe their fear was if they, if that action was like alerted and then they used the credential, it'd be really obvious. Um, so that was what was interesting about that. And there's something else that you said that made me think um, I have to just kind of uh, circle back again. Oh yeah. The net support. Something interesting about net support being an older tool, and I don't know if it matters because of this, but usually when you do like a, an install, um, you know, it will unpackage a bunch of things and all the library files, like the DLLs associated with the program that is needed to run, right? What was interesting with the download of the net support is the PowerShell pulling everything down, pulled down all the dependent files that net support needed to run including the executable. So it was interesting. It was almost like PowerShell created a bunch of files and something like eight or 10 or something like, but enough, enough files that would be interesting of why is PowerShell creating so many files. And with that, you got DLLs and executables. Um, so something that I thought was a interesting behavior, but I thought maybe because there's such an old program, that's why they had to do it that way versus some of the other ways where we see things are like kind of remodeled in packages. I don't know. But uh, that was something that was interesting how they did that. That's interesting. Yeah, so uh, that's all I got for that one. So if you want to jump to yours. So the first one up, uh, and I saw this, and I thought immediately of you. Uh, and, of course, I like to hear your input. Um, well, you spent so much time in the energy sector. Uh, and this is from uh, Sentinel-1. And it says power for the or it's a title article titled power for the people, cyber threats in the energy sector and how to defend against them. So, of course, I see recommendations and I want to see, do you agree? What did this look like from your environment or from your experience? If you can talk on this, yeah, you know, I would have a case. But it starts off talking about how the energy sector uh, is pretty much, uh, you know, a high value target for mm -hmm. uh, adversaries. It talks about Colonial Pipeline and how that ransomware attack was the most significant in the United States and really got the ball rolling, um, you know, in turn or inside the United States. They talked about Russia uh, and the Ukraine conflict and how it's using destructive wipers, um, how there was an attack that was not successful. Um, so the Ukraine was actually able to, um, or they weren't blacked out. They, I think it said that this, w or if the attack succeeded, then this would have been the uh, world's biggest cyber-induced blackout. Uh, which, if you think about it, you know, 
you can if you black out your enemy, they can't communicate, they can't see, they can't hear anything. You know, if you're doing a land invasion while they're blacked out, that's a you know that's a really tough time to defend. Um, and then um, why is the energy uh, sector a big target? You know, it's critical infrastructure. Uh, now, if you're a ransomware gang and you hit a, a critical infrastructure, or if you hit the you know, energy sector, you could probably you may be able to guarantee a ransomware payment because you know that those um, organizations have to be up and running. That's like the availability is the biggest uh, part of that, you know, the CIA triad, um, simply because if they're not producing energy, then people aren't able to power their homes uh, and businesses and you name it. Um, now, they also said that there's a couple things that you can do to increase your security posture from the energy sector. Um, first was manage cyber within the supply chain, uh, which I thought I thought was going to be the toughest, or in my personal opinion, that's got to be the toughest, simply because we have to, like I know the buzzword running around is zero trust, but at some point you have to trust a supplier to get you the stuff that you need to make your stuff, uh, to make your operation successful. We can't, we have organizations, we have businesses that can't function on their own um, simply because they don't create, uh, you know, mine the resources and do all that work all the same time. You know, we're expecting, oh, we need the people to build the machines. Um, and they, the two things that I picked up, they said, review your supply assets or your supplier's assessments, and mandate software bill of materials to track all digital components. So at, at some point, though, if and what I took as mandate software bill is, uh, of materials, in my mind, I was thinking about what the software they built, what uh, libraries they're using, what um, mm -hmm. you know, third-party services, you name it. But at some point, that seems like that would be your supplier's job. Now, don't get me wrong, having redundancy and seeing what they use and being aware of it so that you're not like um, getting hammered by a log4j again um, because someone, you know, if you know about it, you could patch it or at least block that software from running until it's um, not vulnerable. But this just seems like this would be the supply, the supplier's responsibility. Um, so if there ever was a blackout or anything because of a software, that the energy sector or energy company wouldn't be um, held accountable or anything. Um, the next one was implement hardware authentication. And, and I thought this was pretty fascinating. Um, so it's basically, it's a dedicated physical device, uh, like a token or hardware key alongside a primary soft uh, or password. Um, now, the, I felt that the reason they called this out, that it was something outside of uh, MFA. Now, this could be, and I'm guessing it was like the RSA tokens that we had where um, we you know, had the six digits that cycled every minute. Um, it wasn't attached to our phone. It wasn't attached to the internet. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it just ran. And I thought this was pretty cool because if you have it on you physically and you don't have to worry about a text coming in or an email or whatever the case may be, that's going to be a lot harder to get from an adversarial perspective. Um, also, 
this would kind of get away from or it would be it wouldn't be susceptible to the MFA fatigue or the multi-factor authentication fatigue that we've seen in the past where you know teenagers are hammering a help desk like hey I need this hey I need this hey and just by beating up the person and wearing them down they eventually give up the um they give up the multi-factor code or the one-time password or passcode that is used um if you just have it in your hand you're not really having to worry about that and if if there's a policy that says no one will ever ask you for those numbers then that kind of draws a hard line of no one should be calling you about this uh, and then they mentioned real-time monitoring which i thought the supply chain was going to be harder <laughs> but i think this might be the most difficult from my perspective and you can correct me if i'm wrong but learning what your environment is how it functions takes so much time and tribal knowledge that even even if you do have that knowledge is it getting into your sim or edr or whatever the case may be whatever solution you pick are you ingesting the correct logs that are needed or do you have the information to start making those decisions and start creating detections and alerts based off of malicious activity that or abnormal activity in your environment so you can start capturing capturing the adversary before they get to their goals. And then finally, stay up to date with government guidelines and resources. This one, in my personal opinion, um, I don't know. This just always seems like it's always outdated and behind. Um, I could be wrong because, you know, um, this is kind of taking the, or this like taking the position of the tip of the spear and we're really focusing on it, but, you know, you never know. Yeah. So, I'm done. I know, sorry, I was throwing all that information uh, but I want to hear your opinion. So first on just the grid being a target. So a good example of where the grid's a target and it's not even a cyber attack. If you look at the conflict between Hamas and Israel, one of the first thing Israel had the capability to do was shut down power and things to that Gaza Strip or whatever. Um, so it's, it's a go-to play at all times to disrupt anything. Uh, granted, they just had the access to do it, so they didn't have to do a cyber attack, but it just it just lets you know that that is part of the um, objectives if there's ever going to be a conflict or anything. It's going to be how it's going to be the grid in some form or fashion. So that should just be on everyone's radar in general, right, from a risk perspective. Um, managing cyber risk within supply chain. So, I mean, this is good because it's kind of like the Log4j thing, right? You need to know what you kind of have. So this is more about inventory, but also it speaks to me is don't be cheap, right? You know, I feel like a lot of times you become susceptible when you're like, oh, if I can get the same equipment through this other way or whatever and not pay, you know, the expected price directly from the vendor, right? Um, I, I feel like that's that puts you more at risk in some aspects uh, because you don't have the dedication you would have from the main vendor versus some third-party vendor that can get you the same equipment. Uh, so I feel like that's one component of that uh, in some instances. Um, the implement, implement the hardware authentication piece. Uh, I, I, I like, you know, what you were saying, like having the token, I think is a really good, controlled to have separate for specific things and it doesn't have to be that way for your entire environment but i think it does make sense for things that you really can't 
accept the risk of uh, some nuanced type attack that could take advantage of, say, a, a software device someone has access to because it is connected to a network somewhere or there's some way for them to communicate to you through it kind of thing. Um, but it's interesting because a lot, I know there's still a debate on, you know, when you put in RSA token key, you also put in a pin that you create, which is like a password. And some people say, well, that's enough of a password to go along with a token. But, you know, you can set up authentication to do a password and then your pin to go along with your token key. Um, that's kind of more a decision point. Uh, obviously, the more you know, the better it, it can be because the authentication happens at a few different places. So if you're providing what you know and, and it's a pin and a password, you know, you're authenticating on a domain, you're authenticating with an RSA tool. And then you also have a token that's saying that you you have physical access to the device. So that might make you feel more secure, and maybe it is. Um, it feels more secure, I guess you should say. Uh, user behavior analytics. Um, this was interesting because I do think in SCADA environments, um, it's not a, a constantly evolving, changing environment. Uh, you know, you might update some things, you might grow it a little bit, but the things that are usually there and have been there are going to be the same way. So there's a lot of uh, cases where, you know, when you say user behavior, I hate when people always just think of users in the environment. I like to think of hosts because I think hosts are more static as far as how they behave than the users themselves because users are driven by projects, initiatives, whatever, right? Um, but when you look at how hosts behave and what they talk to, I think that's a really strong um, indicator. And then the, the visibility thing. So this is always funny to me. Uh, visibility, it's hard because I think we make it hard based on how we architect things. Um, Dragos, I think, is one of the best suite of tools um, for getting visibility to an environment. But, you know, I remember where having conversations around visibility and it was like, well, you're never going to get visibility to this because the way this information is being carried is going through these types of things. And, you know, you can't see into that and the blah, 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 blah. Is that that was like a more secure thing. And if to me, being able to see the data that rides over those networks and securing it in a way where someone can't look into it, I don't think is more secure than saying that you can have some process where the devices are, are able to um, authenticate or authorize that when they receive that packet of information that came from a legitimate source. Like that's more important to me than actually having no one be able to read it uh, in transit. Um, because... You know, when it comes to disrupting something like the grid, I mean, there's a lot of safeguards. So don't get me wrong. It's not as vulnerable as some people like to make it sound. But um, if, if your job is just to create chaos and destroy things and just, you know, whatever, that 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 you don't have to have a great understanding of the environment. Um, with the Ukraine attacks, they had some bad, they had a bad out of order thing um, that, prevented them from opening more breakers than they wanted to in one area, but because one breaker they opened up killed their connection because they killed power to something they were using. But um, if you were to give me a sledgehammer and have you walk into a data center and you were like, hey, you know, try to impact this site, I could slam everything that's running and create impact and have no idea what any of those systems do, right? 
And that's kind of how I think about it. If, if someone's mission is just destruction and, and, uh, to impair operations, having that, um, having data obfuscated to where you can't even have visibility yourself isn't necessarily a great place to be. Um, so I think having that visibility or being able to build in that visibility is really powerful. Uh, it's in my opinion, one of your best defenses in a lot of ways, because that's where you start learning about a lot of things that may put you at risk too. Like you don't know what your risks are if you can't have visibility the right way into your environment either. So managing that becomes almost, uh, um, smoke and mirrors in some ways. And then the up to date with government guidance, you know, it's funny to me is that, like you said, well, you know, that you feel like that's kind of far behind. Well, I would agree, but if you're behind their guidance, then you're not doing a very good job. So, yeah, so I was, so that would be like the baseline, right? Right. Like don't be below this, but you should be doing <laughs> better. So, um, so that's kind of, I guess, kind of heading up on those points. Uh, did I answer the, the questions that you, th you thought I should answer as, as far as this goes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Your, your insights always, uh, um, always, anytime you speak, really, it's, uh, from experience, it's not a waste of time. Um, I did like the call out of how I normally operate with a hammer in a server room. Um, <laughs> why I wasn't allowed in the server room, I guess. <laughs> All right. Great, great discussion. Um, and thank you for the insight. Uh, it was really good to go. Um, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to hand it off to you for the next one. Okay. Yeah. So this next one is really just an article based on something currently going on that we don't really know the full impact of, but I thought it was worth talking because we hear about these attacks a lot. And I feel like this is slightly different and it's, um, so I got a, uh, the article from Reuters. And it was the Boeing assessing lockbit hacking gang threat of sensitive data leak. So, you know, basically uh, it, there was a post that saying they have data from Boeing and they're giving them the extortion of how they're going to release it publicly. You know, they are not contacted and dealt with all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, this is their traditional approach, right? Ransomware will get in either ransom something to extort you or steal data to extort you or, or likely both. But this is interesting to me because it kind of made me, as you know, reading through different articles about it, made me think too. You know, Boeing obviously does a lot of military-based contracting, and has a lot of good intellectual property um, for how it operates in general. And then, you know, I think about uh, some nation-state-driven objectives in general, and you know, there's some nations like China who's really into intellectual property, and there's some nations adversarially don't like. Uh, the U.S. specifically or want to have an advantage when it comes to the U.S. in a military fashion. So any kind of military known secrets are of high value as well. And so I and I don't feel like these ransomware groups are like, you know, very they have a high morality, right? Obviously, they're, they're doing it for money, but um, I would think and this is my own personal opinion that the one thing that you could gain by paying someone off not to release your information in this fashion, if you were this kind of entity, that you might prevent it from going public because they want to make sure goodwill of, you know, their actions that people will pay them more often because they'll show they won't release things publicly and they'll follow their word. But I still would think 
if there's money to be made, because that's really the big motivation in a lot of these campaigns. If someone was really like a nation state was really interested in an intellectual property or uh, military or government secrets, when the target is the right target, uh, they'd be willing to pay behind the scenes and release the information that way. Um, and the reason why I bring up that type of scenario is if you are a company or something in this type of position, um, where you have information like this of value to more than just your competitors, you know, so to speak, you should really go above and beyond how you protect that data. So that say if someone lands in your main network and steals data, you know, they're not going to necessarily have the capabilities to get at the data where you keep your intellectual property or trade secrets or military secrets or things like that. Even to the point where it might be worth having a, completely separately designed network that may not be connected to your main network, but you have access points to be able to view and read things by people connecting to those networks separately, right? Um, to be able to do the work they need to do. Uh, so that's kind of the point I wanted to hit on is I think uh, you can't have that expectation that information is going to not go somewhere, depending on how you want to protect yourself publicly is a whole nother scenario. But your real best defense in planning for this is if your main most accessible network gets compromised, how do your other sensitive areas get compromised and can they from that network? Like you should just know that and have whatever protections in place to basically make that an almost impossible move as best as possible. So um, that was kind of the message I want to give here, but it's interesting to see how this will turn out and what Boeing decides to do. Right. But, uh, we will see. So they, they said that they need to pay the ransom by November 2nd. So they have a few days. Um, but yeah, this is, I thought it was a pretty interesting headline at least. Yeah. Uh, so this really worried me. Um, so and basically, I honestly, the only thing I could think of was we've seen ransomware attacks. We've seen data exfiltration, and we've seen how um, adversaries or threat act groups have tied those two goals and uh, behaviors together. So now, instead of just encrypting all your data and making you pay for the key, they do what's called double extortion, where they say, all right, pay us for the key. Here's your key, and, you know, unencrypt your files. Oh, by the way, we exfiltrate all your data, so you're gonna have to pay us so that we don't post it on, you know, the dark web or even, you know, publicly. You know, with Boeing being hit, this kind of worries me because it opens it up to a lot more. And you mentioned proprietary information, and that's what the biggest thing I'm worried about is like. They can now hold Boeing, not only double extortion if they pay the ransom, um, but they could also extort them for the PII uh, of the you know of the employees, of customers, of military contracts, of military members, you name it. Um, who knows what lateral movement they can or what information they have? So can they now start hitting other government agencies, and then? Could they extort them and say, you know, China would love to see mm -hmm. the blueprints of all these new planes you play or all your research and everything if they have that information? It it just kind of 
I know it was a short report or a short article, but sometimes those hit the hardest because you just re like you realize all the information they have, and then you start to think like, wow, they could really do damage here. Um, right. Hopefully they don't, um, because that's a lot of stuff um, that could get leaked. Uh, I I just hope this gets settled uh, quickly. Um yeah, I'm hoping that the data they have isn't the data that is the most risky data, right? Like, just, like, I think that's what Boeing is assessing now, is, like, what data do we think they actually hold to really be concerned by this? So, right. Cool. So that kind of sums that up. What do you got next? Next up in the, uh, I saw this article, and I had to go with the theme of Halloween being tomorrow. But the Elastic Security Labs wrote an article about the Ghost Pulse malware. Um, now, it was it's a, a stealthy loader uh, that they call the Ghost Pulse, uh, which decrypts and injects its final payload to evade detection. But they walk through uh, the multiple stages of the uh, of the uh, malware actually operating. There is uh, some Easter eggs in here that I saw, or maybe not Easter eggs, but things that stuck out to me. Um, but, you know, reading through this article, the question of how do I, how can I hunt for this or how can I recommend hunting for this, um, always in the back of my head. Now, there's a lot of API stuff going on. Um, now, I believe Elastic has some uh, call stack summary fields that you can use uh, if you're using their products that can actually track that. Um, but if not, uh, you know, the questions of, you know, what can I do from here? Well, so for the stage zero, um, the PowerShell script uh, is dropped um, by a malicious MSIX installer. Um, then PowerShell, or in the PowerShell script, it decrypts the file that it pulls down um, from a uh, MonoJS, or uh, I don't even know how to pronounce the URL, uh, but they pull down uh, a TARP file, but they then they decrypt it using the GPG utility. And there's some um, parameters that they can use, like batch, uh, yes, to answer yes to any prop, uh, prompts. Batch, executes GPG uh, in non-interactive mode. So basically you're saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to apply the parameters needed in the command line so that I don't have to click anything. Um, then it has uh, decrypt and then output. But the funny thing is, there's a passphrase used for the GPG file. And this kind of um, kind of reminded me of the password protected zip files that we always, or that, you know, we have, that if you do know the password, you can add that into, or if you're using like 7-zip, you can add that into the command line arguments. But the passphrase for this one was Putin. <laughs> um, now, attribution aside, that just kind of <laughs> made me laugh because... I'm not saying it's a uh, a false flag, because um, yeah, I can't be certain. But that's just like the most. I don't. know. It's just so out there. Like, why would Russia use Putin as a passphrase? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, too too obvious, I guess, in my mind. Um, or well, so I would say sometimes. The passphrase is really just there to get past the, so it's encrypted. So they really just only care about not being detected. And so they could just not really care 
one way or the other, the passphrase is disclosed. Um, or, you know, it was just kind of a weird usage. So, yeah. Right. Like they were, or they were just like having fun. Right. Just like, whatever. Um, Putin's going to unlock my, or decrypt my, uh, file for me. Um, but so you can look for, um, first of all, uh, any GPG files being, uh, uh, or, uh, GPG file extensions in your environment. Um, and then the, um, command line arguments. Now you don't have to use all of them. So you don't have to look for batch, yes, passphrase, decrypt, and output all at the same time. What you can start doing is kind of baseline it to see what's going on. Um, look for just, uh, GPG files in your environment. Um, then if they do exist, and you see some, and then you can start taking a look at, okay, well, what does normal look like? You know, do we use batch? Do we use passphrases? Or, you know, because batch is the uh, non-interactive mode, is that something that your admins use to automate things easier? Uh, and then do they include the passphrase in the command line arguments? Uh, and so on. Uh, but what you don't want to do, and what I, uh, I caution all those threat hunters out there, if you're listening, is... I like to start general, so so create those as, as an or statement. So you could say file name contains GPG, um, and command line contains batch or yes or passphrase or decrypt, versus going the opposite way and looking for them all at once and saying I'm looking for batch and yes and passphrase and decrypt. Because if you do that, you might be looking for this in too specific of a way, um, whereas if they left one parameter out, you may miss it. Um, and I hope that makes sense. Um, then the next, or stage one, was DLL sideloading. So I was looking at the little diagram. Um, and normally this involves a, a vulnerable or, a, or basically a benign um, executable ma uh, matched with a DLL uh, normally in the same uh directory um so that you know because of the um the order that it calls it uh, if the dll is in the same directory as it it will make sure it uses that dll that you're calling uh, but it was the vbox service.exe um it called libcurl.dll and then there was some mshtml dll uh activity and then that led to uh windows or ultimately windows command shell executing, um, which led to more injections and then some persistence. Uh, so looking for that type of activity and using the diagram that they had uh, in the article, you can kind of look at the flow of the traffic and start planning out your hunt from there. And then uh, some of the um, things that the team called out was, you know, DNS query to suspicious TL uh, top-level domains. So if you start seeing things that don't make sense, whether gibberish or just new that you haven't gone to, um, or if they're new or they stood up, or if they have file extensions in the name, you know, that could be something to look for. Uh, suspicious API calls from unsigned DLLs. Once again, this uh, looks like they have a different technology that tracks that, so I don't know how prevalent that is. Um, I've tried looking for uh, Windows events that capture APIs, but once again, Someone said that would be a lot of events and very noisy and a waste of time, um, which is okay. I get. Uh, but then there's process creation for modified NTDLL, uh, the actual DLL. So from there, once again, 
it goes from like easy to expert mode and expert mode is always like the profiling where you take a look at it you baseline your you take a look at the data you have you baseline what you have um, what's going on in your environment so you can learn what normal looks like and then from there you start to look for things that are abnormal like weird processes calling ntdll uh dot dll or uh different or child processes that are executed shortly after ntdll is called um that really like don't make sense um you know because if the process is injected you can really do anything you want with it um if it has the capabilities but that's all i have for that uh, i thought it was a neat write-up um especially uh with the halloween theme uh, but it definitely seemed like another um you know just an interesting piece of malware yeah, so I was I was looking at this, um, and one of the things that really stood out to me was obviously the uh, the side loading um, piece of it because it was using the Notepad updater, the GUP from Notepad plus plus, um, because apparently it's vulnerable to that. And then I started thinking about you know their screenshots they're showing in there how they determine this is obviously looking at the digital signature. Because that's one of the things that lets you bypass security is if it's signed by a legitimate signature, it's another way where most products will be like, yeah, we know this, so we trust it, even though whatever, we change things. But if it's vulnerable, then it, you're kind of adding that vulnerability to the system. And then I started thinking, you know, it might be an interesting take to look at, um, one, if you see something signed with a digital signature, where does it exist on the system? Like, is it a program that exists in program files or if it's signed by Microsoft, is it in the standard Microsoft executable directories like system 32 and so forth? Um, so there was that piece, um, right. Uh, possibly trying to do some analysis that way. Um, but the other thing that was interesting because it uses so many APIs was the heaven's gate technique. And we were hearing about this a long time ago. Um, because I think it kind of originated in early 2000s. But basically, uh, one of the things some um, actors figured out was we've talked before in the past that, you know, if something executes 32-bit, then it kind of runs the whole SysWow 64, 32-bit chain. Um, you can see that when it comes to ex exploits and things like that. And on a 64-bit system, sometimes that can be suspicious. Well, the SysWAS 64 is really a subsystem or an environment that 32-bit can run in kind of under the system. Well, Heaven's Gate is a way where they can make API calls outside of a 32-bit process by creating their own import table and basically execute 64-bit binaries. Uh, what's unique about this is that makes it really hard for security controls and um, like endpoint security stuff to track that, to basically associate these behaviors and things. So it's a, it's a way they kind of bypass some security things. And it's, it, it was considered more of an advanced technique back, you know, then, but it's still effective today. And you can see if people are rely heavily on APIs, how they can leverage this technique even more. So, um, and that was an interesting technique that kind of stood out in this as well, that kind of showed some, some form of sophistication, even though it's an older technique. So. Yeah. I just always notepad plus plus. 
know, it's, it's like Excel, maybe. Not that they're not they're taking a dirt road, but. Well, it's like VLC last time, right? It's just those common, really popular, uh, open, like easy to get to um, programs that may not have the same governance in their creation, right? I don't know. Right. And I know Notepad++ has a lot more capabilities than just standard Notepad, which makes me think if if you're searching for Notepad++ or, you know, if you find that on someone's desktop, is that normally like a power user versus like your, your standard user? Mm-hmm. So the last one is something that I pulled from Security Joe's, um, and it's titled "BB Linux: A New Wiper Dropped by Pro Hamas Activist Group." So this is just interesting because it's just a, a now like you know I talked about common trends of conflicts that have like cyber elements in them. Um, it seems like wipers is the thing, right? Like, obviously, they don't care about ransomware, per se, because they're not trying to make money off of you. Um, they might try to encrypt things to prevent you from, like, to bring down systems. But, you know, wipers are just as effective if you don't want to recover anything. And in this case, it's a, it's a Linux wiper. So, you know, just kind of understanding, like, what's the motivation, what's going on. Um, wipers are going to be a, a tool i mean it, it's almost like a weapon in the cyber tool belt for nation state offensive operations and the one thing that really stood out here um it kind of goes through a bunch of different things um was they use the command um no hub when running the tool in targeted environments um they program this allows the program to continue um, printing input to the terminal um, instead of it being redirected to a file and prevents it from being um, interrupted, essentially. So, uh, you know, the, you go to Wikipedia, no up is a, as a POSIX command, which means no hangup. Its purpose is to execute a command such that it ignores the HUP or hangup signal and therefore does not stop when the user logs out. So you can kind of kick something off and then get out in case maybe if you're wiping something and it somehow breaks your session because you're wiping it and then it interrupts the whole life, right? So that was like a big clear indication. Now, granted, when you see this um, and a wiper is already kicked off, you know, you might, might, I mean, things are running at machine speed, but that was the biggest thing that was the most obvious based on their analysis that stood out for that. So really it was looking at the motivation, right, behind it all. And then, you know, even looking at, I mean, it was kind of hard. I'm sure if I were to continue to dig in this, I might find some other types of things and they had a yara rule um in there um as well but obviously that was the most the biggest key indicator was the no hub command um being issued so so you know one it kind of reminded me and, and helped me understand like you know there's certain things you have to run in certain ways to prevent them from auto exiting that i kind of don't think about from time to time uh, but that was kind of my biggest takeaway nothing too exciting but interesting yeah, so you threw uh, a Linux execute at me, um, which, of course, <laughs> my mind blew up right away. Um, but the fact that we're seeing um, this conflict going on, and that it, it seems like they took a page out of Russia's uh, mm-hmm. playbook, where they s- stepped up and immediately just started throwing wipers everywhere. Um, once again, like you said, the goal is to destroy. The goal is to cause chaos. 
Um, they're not looking for money. They're not looking for, uh, you know, proprietary information. They're just looking to um, attack and hurt. Uh, what, what really stood out to me uh, was pretty interesting. Um, and I hate to say that word in a, in, in a sense like this, um, but the three ways that they did uh, or the techniques they use, like file breaking. So they were overwriting their contents instead of encrypting. Mm-hmm. Uh, file renaming and changing extensions uh, to include uh, the BB or BIBI. And then um, uh, notably, you know, the malware refrains from altering files with the extensions dot out or dot so. Um, I thought that was, uh, I don't know, just even to wipers, there is some things that you don't want to destroy if you are relying on some uh, some more things. And I, if that I think last week or two weeks ago, we discussed how um, an adversary, in one of the articles you brought up, an adversary used the RM-RF, uh-huh. uh, but they didn't star it. Um, right. Yeah, you know, this kind of seems like that. It's like, they're like, all right. And, and that the scary part of it is it goes into the thought of like, all right, we're going to wipe this, but how can we still use it as a resource if we need to go back whether it be you know for persistence or for lateral movement like once they start standing the infrastructure back up and you know recovering from it how are they going to move in or what's their you know if they already have something that is a compromise they don't need to send another phishing email they don't need to fish someone or you know gain re-entry they're already they don't want to wipe out their wiper right like what are the first thing that gets wiped is the wiper you know like it's I mean, I know yeah. technically it's running in memory, so that shouldn't be as you know much of an issue. But yeah, it is interesting to see what files and things they preserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I have for that one. Yeah, so I think that kind of concludes um, the things we wanted to run through for the the five top threat hunting headlines. Uh, so um, with that, some closing remarks for those that were able to join us at the Information uh, Security Summit here in Cleveland. That um, was a good time. Uh, obviously, we're going to have some special podcast episodes that come out of that because we talked to some interesting people. Um, we also had some good talks with the talks that both you know Lee and I gave. So uh, appreciate the people and the feedback. It was all well received. So thanks, everyone, for that that participation. It was a lot of fun. And also want to thank people for the Sandsfall Cyber Solution Fest participation for some of the games and things and, and interactions and conversations we had there. Um, that was also a good time. But, you know, there's still opportunities for more things to come. So uh, if you haven't uh, joined the event or, you know, signed up for it, we are having the Mastering the Hunt Translating Intelligence to Action with Recorded Future November 8th from noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time where we're basically talking operationalizing threat intel into actionable objectives in threat hunting. So that should be a great conversation. Um, and with that, just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, we'll close out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 30th, 2023. Happy haunting. Happy haunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and 
follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.